Hey everyone, thank you so much for joining us for this week's edition of All Things Evangelism. This week we're going to speak about the fact that in six days, God made the heavens and the earth. Six literal days. And we're going to talk about the implications of that fact on evangelism and how mission is affected by how we fall on this particular issue. This afternoon, I'm very blessed to have Sven Ostringer here just to discuss this subject with me. Now, Sven, he's someone who has taken a lot of interest in the subject of creation and evolution. And you guys will know that because I've had him on the podcast before and we've talked about similar subjects. I'm happy you're here. It's good to be here, Matt. Really good to be able to talk about this really important topic. It is. And I don't think that people understand as much as they should, how important this topic really is. Mm. And uh, this morning, I was thinking about Romans 5, in verse 12, where the Apostle Paul, he says that through one man, sin entered into the world, and death through sin. According to the Apostle Paul, who we believe is Christ followers, but we believe he's a prophet and an apostle, he, he indicates through that statement in Romans 5 that Death was preceded by sin. This then teaches that Paul believed that Adam, that the first people sinned, and through sin came death. But the evolutionary model speaks differently. The evolutionary model is very fascinating, and a lot of people don't understand the the relevance of it. Which is this: is that I guess we're really accustomed to the biblical narrative, which is the creation week. Then we've got, obviously, Adam and Eve on the the Friday, the the sixth day of creation, and and then we have the first Sabbath. And and then you go through the fall, and the rest is human history, according to the Bible. The evolutionary model is incredibly different, which is this, is that the total population of human beings never dropped below about 10,000 individuals. So there is no one person from a biological perspective when you look at the evolutionary paradigm. So the question is, how do we reconcile that with the biblical teaching, which is exactly what you said, that through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin? First of all, the evolutionary paradigm could say it's a complete myth with regards to the whole discussion about Adam. But this draws into a huge question the whole Bible, not only the first chapters, which is in Genesis, but a lot of what Jesus teaches as well, but also um, Paul too. Then there's another model which says that somehow God chose an individual out of that group of prehistoric farmers and said, I'm going to endow you with a human spirit, which included morality and and all of those kind of things, the capacity to connect with God. And, And that one person becomes a historical Adam within this mix of human beings. And then we move on from that. But the problem there is that there's a number of issues. First of all, how come Adam, that person who got given the spirit, why was he singled out? What about all of the others? Why weren't they? There's a real problem of equality and equity in that. But also then you end up with all of the problems of, okay, if the human race can be saved, so Adam and all of his descendants can be saved, what about all of the Neanderthals and all of those common hominids as well? We run into some really big problems with this view, and it really unravels the whole concept of not only creation, but also of sin and the fall and redemption and ultimate glorification as as well. It is very corrosive to the Christian and the biblical faith as we've talked before. Yeah, I've heard I've heard someone say before that if in fact 
people evolved mm. into conscious sentient beings, then we would have to attribute life-giving properties to the cruelty that exists in this world. You've got the predator-prey relationship where one species is eating another, killing mm. it mercilessly to satisfy its appetite and its hunger. And through this bloody process, you've got the refinement of various species to the point where they develop sufficiently to have the kind of capacity that humans have. And so then in, in that view of reality, you're now giving cruelty the capacity to create or the ability to create. So all life, all the beauty, that, that just all life and all that we see in humanity and all, the, all of our intellectual ability and whatnot, we would have to just attribute to all of these cruel evolutionary processes and then to say that God used those to bring about this first Adam, this mythical first Adam. What in the world does that say about God mm. to use these horrible processes, ones that we would say are horrible, unless you just say they're not horrible, to bring about human life? But if the Bible's, if the Bible's true and what Paul said was true, that through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, now you can see a God who's a pretty good person, a pretty decent person. And so evangelistically, if how do you preach to reasonable people, to people with, with moral sensibilities that, hey, we can merge science and evolution and we can come up with this idea that God used evolutionary processes to bring humanity into existence and sin was just an after effect mm. of all of this. But isn't someone at some point going to say, what in the world kind of God would do that? Mm. Like, really? Mm. Like humans or animals do suffer. Animals do feel pain. They may not be as aware of themselves as we are aware of ourselves, and they might not have the abilities that we have, but wow. To it really, through all this death and pain and misery, that's how God brings about perfection? Mm. Wow. That's that's either a haphazard God who's, who's a bit clumsy and ridiculous, or a God who's pretty nasty mm. to cause all this horror. It is really interesting that you have this idea where there's almost this kind of deification of nature. Mm. So quite often in in evolutionary books, particularly more popular books, they'll actually change nature from being lowercase n nature to being uppercase nature sort of mother nature there's this almost creative powers exactly what you're saying and it really points to the fact that as human beings we in many ways it's part of our nature to use that word to really worship something and if we're not worshiping god then ultimately we will worship nature or we'll worship our own reason. See that in the French Revolution, where reason is actually put up as a, a goddess. But going back to your comments about the cruelty in nature, one of the comments has been, well, perhaps that God actually created all of the animals and the animal kingdom, and there was a whole lot of pain and suffering, which was anticipatory of what would happen with the human race. But from my perspective, I, I find that very difficult to really comprehend. I can really understand how God may see the necessity of actually taking his created order with the animals and saying, okay, we need to use animals for sacrifices 
to model what Jesus is going to do. It's a response to sin. But to actually inflict all of that pain and suffering for, for millions and billions of years on the animal kingdom, just for our sake, I really personally really struggle with that picture of God. And what we do have here, coming back to this whole concept of evangelism, I, I've been studying the, the concept of worldviews. And of course, with a worldview comes a narrative a story. But really with evangelism, what we are really doing is we're saying we are preaching a different worldview. There's the predominant worldview, which is materialistic, it's individualistic, it's also competitive, it's also intrinsically self-centered. That's how our world effectively runs. And the evolutionary paradigm just fits in really well with that. But there's another worldview, which is uh, a picture of God who is morally perfect, morally good, and he has the power to intervene in our lives in in spectacular ways. And this is the question, what is the worldview? What is the narrative that we are called upon to preach? Are we we called upon to to preach a, a challenging narrative? A one which counters the current worldview that we have in the world. And that's exactly what we see in, in Revelation. In in the three angels' messages, is you've got this world which is is focused on self or focused on confusion, focused on, on really trying to move forward and pride that you see both in Revelation 18, but also in in back in Daniel as well. Is that self-centered worldview the thing which is going to define our lives or are we going to go with a very different worldview which is the biblical worldview that God loves us and is wanting to intervene in our lives and do something spectacular amen to, to me if a person accepts this idea of of evolution and tries to hang on to their biblical faith I don't think that they understand how debilitating that will become so in your own personal experience you're called to crucify the flesh with its affections and lusts. Jesus says, unless you forsake all that you have, you can't be my disciple. I know that when he says that, he doesn't mean, if you do this, you'll warrant my acceptance. And and, and that's not the dynamic that he's, he's presenting. But rather, he's saying, look... I'm the kind of God, like to your point, I'm the kind mm. of God who gives up everything that he has for others because I'm unselfish. Yes. And so if you want to follow me, following me requires unselfishness and it requires you to sacrifice yourself, to lay yourself down. Mm. And so my world is a different world. My kingdom is a different kingdom and it's all about love and it's all about putting others first. And if I I I incorporate evolutionary theory into my biblical faith, that really throws a monkey wrench into that whole machinery of love, that presentation of God. And so as I'm walking as a Jesus follower, and I meet these kind of crucible moments where it's challenging to move forward in faith, if I've got this kind of seed of evolutionary thinking in my mind, I can, and I can write off major portions of scripture and the belief of the prophets that is encouched in scripture, their belief in the fact that God made in seven days, and that's mm. the genesis of our world. That's the genesis of our, of our, of our existence. They're going to have a hard time moving forward because they can just discount any statement and rationalize anything that the scriptures say. So they're, they're going to be hurt mm. by that view, and their witness is going to be hurt because how do you look people in the face, like honestly? How do you look people in the face and say to them, if you want to follow Jesus, deny, deny yourself, pick up your cross, sacrifice yourself, and you follow him? 
into glory. That's the path to eternal life. Oh, but by the way, we're not exactly sure which scriptures to trust because those ancients did speak in accordance with the theories and understandings of their time, and they weren't scientific and elevated like us, and therefore they couldn't just critique the Genesis account as successfully as we can and get out of it. You just get into this place where, and you say this often, and I like this, where you're just exalting human reason. and Absolutely. You're just basically saying, I'm the authority, and I'll decide what's yes. really going on here. And that's really hurtful. So how are we going to be evangelistically successful? And how are we going to be, and, and these are rhetorical questions, how are we going to be personally successful in mm. our Bible faith when we're just emerging it and amalgamating it with? What you were saying is really powerful. I just want to pick up on that. Evolutionary pathway is a struggle for ascendancy. It, it's going up in the world. This is the picture. Whereas what we see in Philippians chapter 2 is a God who's willing to descend because of self-sacrificing agape love. And these are completely different directions. And we need to ask ourselves, and this is where you're coming with this, pick up your cross and become my disciple. Which pathway does that follow? Is it a, a struggle for ascendancy? I see that, to be honest with you. I see that more in the disciples when they're arguing about who is the greatest. That is the evolutionary pathway. Whereas the, the God we serve is already great. God does not evolve. And this is a very important point here. In many ways, the whole evolutionary paradigm is that everything evolves. You know, you've got the Big Bang and the whole universe is evolving. You've got the biological world, it's evolving as well. Whereas when you look at God, God exists as the, as philosophers would say, the maximally great being. Everything about God is great in terms of all-powerful, he's all-knowing, he's morally perfect, he's present everywhere, and he exists necessarily. God does not evolve. And when God, when there's a, shall I say, a change, if I could put it that way, what we see is God descending into our world to save us. It's completely opposite to the, the evolutionary paradigm. And this is the message that we want to share, that we can, as a book title said a number of years ago that I read, we can descend into greatness. And this is the pathway that the Bible is calling us to follow. And when we do, God will exalt us in incredible ways with Jesus. So good. Such a good thought. Yeah, amen. So should we talk about Exodus 20 for a bit. Absolutely. Let's dive into the Ten ten Commandments, and and in particular the fourth. So a lot of people who believe in the Bible, as it reads, and when I say as it reads, I don't mean people who have a word-inspired view of Mm. the Bible, but people who accept the thought-inspired view like us. We believe The Seventh-day Adventist understanding of inspiration. That's right. We believe the thoughts are inspired. So when we say we, we believe the Bible as it reads, we don't mean that we think every word chosen was inspired that God chose the words. We think he chose the thoughts. He inspired the thoughts in the prophets, and they wrote the words in the way that they could write the words. And that's why, for example, the letters of Peter sound different to the letters of John and Paul. That's right. Otherwise, God is a bit schizophrenic. He writes in different styles wherever, and it just doesn't make sense. (laughs) He's a very moody guy. Very moody. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so Ellen White said the prophets were God's penmen, not God's pen. And uh, I think she even, in one statement, either she or some teacher of mine said this, that the Bible is similar to Jesus. It's fully inspired, and f- but it's human. It's fully human and fully God. Yes. In that he was fully human and he was fully God. Here you, you have the words of God. That's just, this is God's word. Mm. Yet at the same time, the words used were not the words God chose. They're divine thoughts in human containers. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, that's right. It's humanly expressed 
thoughts mm. from God. So those of us who take the Bible as it reads in the appropriate way have pointed out that the fourth commandment indicates very clearly that if God did not create the world in six literal days, then that nullifies the Sabbath. And so being a Sabbatarian is wholly, it's meaningless. It's utterly meaningless. And the Seventh-day Adventist movement as a whole is really out of place in the course of world events. So we've got the belief born out of the books of Daniel and Revelation that we're a movement that God raised up to restore biblical faith at the end of time and to rightly represent God and his teachings at the end of time, because through the course of Christian history, the teachings of God in Scripture and the character of God has been skewed, corrupted. And we think that the Sabbath plays a role in all of this because the Sabbath is a sign of God's creative and redemptive work, and it reflects him as a person. So it is a special flag or memorial or representation of God, his person, his laws, his sovereignty, And this is how we see ourselves as a movement, and we believe we're called to evangelize and to preach. Now, if, in fact, God did not make the world in six literal days, then you cannot really define the Sabbath as a universal institution of mankind. You just have to simply say it was a relic of Jewish history, Mm. right? But it seems when you read the fourth commandment, if you accept the fourth commandment as the word of God, like God actually said this, you can't come to those conclusions. You have to accept that God made the world in six days. Definitely, definitely. And the difference here is that what we see in Genesis and in Exodus is that it's a universal sign. It's, it comes at the very beginning of the human race. It's not something which was just introduced by a million Hebrew slaves that had escaped out of Egypt. And it's certainly not of, of human origin. But you're absolutely right. This is an incredible day to remember. But also, and this is very important as well, and I love this part, is that the fourth commandment has a universal dimension in and of itself, which is this, is that when you look at the fourth commandment, most of the fourth commandment is not about you. It's It says right here, six days you shall labor but and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you. So that all of that is about you. But from that point on, it's about everyone else that you need to share the Sabbath with, including your family, your employees. But it goes even further than that. It's, it talks about, as the old King James Version would say, the alien or the sojourner. So this is crossing a national boundary, crossing that, that, that cultural ethic limitation. But it even goes further than that as well too because it talks about your donkey, your ox, your, your livestock as well. So this is not just a Jewish tradition. This is not only just a human tradition. This, this is universal. All of God's creation deserves to rest and to be able to enjoy a wonderful relationship with him. And this is incredible. And so we really need to be thinking when we keep the Sabbath day, how are we sharing it with others? But that what is the grounds of that? The commandment in Exodus gives the universal grounds, which is this. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Now you compare it with Deuteronomy. Only the Jews were... Um, redeemed, were um, released from Exodus. It wasn't a universal experience. So what we see here is that we need to, if we're going to dive deeper, 
into the reality of the Sabbath, we need to go to the foundation, which is the Sabbath in the Genesis account. Yeah, amen. In six days, this is what the Sabbath commandment says, the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and and all that's in in them, and rested the seventh day, wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. It's clear that we're supposed to remember the Sabbath day, yes. the seventh day of the weekly cycle. And then in the commandment, it seems to put this little caveat out at the end that, yeah, God made the world in six days and then rested the seventh. And this mm. is the basis upon which we make this command. God makes this command. And I think it's important that people realize the preamble to the Ten Commandments is, and God spoke all these words saying, I'm the Lord your God, and mm. I brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of bondage. And then he starts to speak his commands to them. Mm-hmm. But Moses says, God spoke all these words. And then when in Deuteronomy 5, it says that when the people hear God speaking, they're frightened and they tell Moses, don't let us hear him talking anymore. Like we've lived through that, through mm-hmm. hearing him talk. But if he keeps talking, we're afraid that the glory of his presence is going to fully just fry us up. Yes. We're going to be dead. And so then they say to Moses, you go and intercede for us. And God says, yeah, that's good. That's good. I'm glad that they're responding this way because it's appropriate that I utilize an intercessor. Because of my nature and their nature, when those things come together, it's not going to be good for you. And so God actually spoke those words. And if we believe that God spoke those words, then we must believe that they're accurate words. Mm. That in six days, and, and by the way, it's very clear, like there's no Hebrew scholar that would say that can be taken metaphorically. Like those, that command is speaking about six actual 24-hour periods that God made the world in. It's not, it's not up for debate. So either... Well, there, there's a lot of exegetical evidence in Genesis, if you go back to Genesis, that these were literal days. Mm-hmm. So first of all, you've got the evening and morning cycle. So there was evening and there was morning the first day, evening and morning the second day. And that qualifier always refers to actual days. So that's the first one. The, the second point is that there's the numbering. So the first day, the second day, the third day, the fourth day. Whenever you have a day and, and it's referred to as a, has an ordinal number associated with it, then that's referring to an actual day. So for example, if I say in, in my grandfather's day, they didn't have smartphones. I, won't, I will never say the first day or the second day. It's a generic kind of thing. So that's the second thing. So we've got the evening, morning cycle. We've got the number associated with the day. But then you've also got another piece of evidence as well, which is the, the Hebrew word toledot, which is a count or genealogy. And, and these systematically tie the whole book of Genesis together to say that this is a historical account. It's a historical account of Abraham. It's a historical account of Isaac and Jacob. And you go back to Noah and Adam. But it's also that same word, toledot, is used with regards to creation as well in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. And so all of these point to the fact that these are literal historical days. And we need to take this seriously. Anyone who says that this is simple, simply poetry is simply not facing the evidence in the text itself. Well, they're also assuming that poetry cannot be utilized to communicate a historical fact. <laughs> but the thing, yeah, absolutely, you're they're absolutely right. Their, their particular view of how, they're, they're, they're assuming 
that how they relate to poetry is how all cultures at all times have related to poetry. Yeah, so you could write a, a poem about Australia Day or Independence Day in the States or whatever, and it could be referring to historical reality. But the thing is this, is that in the Genesis text, there are not the hallmarks, the, the things that we would normally see with Hebrew poetry. There's not the parallelism. There's the verbs used, are narrative verbs. And so everything points to the fact that this is a historical narrative which actually occurred. And basically, the fourth commandment confirms that. It points straight back and says, the Lord created all of this. The Lord God created all of this in six days. So, so I would contend that Seventh-day Adventists cannot be successful in their mission if they integrate evolutionary theory into their belief system at all. Absolutely. Totally agree with because you. Because we virtually, in accepting evolution, are neutralizing our effectiveness because it, it renders us, we have no point to exist. We have no point to exist. But I, so just Because just, we go back to what you were saying before, because we are called to to proclaim and to restore a biblical worldview in opposition to the dominant, self-centered, struggle for ascendancy worldview. And as soon as we give up that message, we have lost our reason to exist. Absolutely. And if I'm communicating something, God has said, thus saith the Lord. Okay, there's power. There's power in that conviction. If I weaken my conviction with human speculative theories, and and I don't care how many smart people accept something, evolutionary theory is a speculative theory that takes really smart people. It's really brilliant because I heard a guy say one time, he's debated evolutionists a lot, and he said, look, they're all smarter than me. I, I fully admit they're way smarter than me. They have to be. You have to be that smart. You have to be super smart to convince a lot of people of such a bad idea. And so he's like, but I always kill them in debates. I I demolish them in debates. But anyways, I don't care how many smart people accept something. Evolution is a speculative theory, and it's based on human capacity to understand and know what happened millions of years ago. Guess what? We don't know what's happening now. Okay, do we agree on the lockdowns due to COVID? Why no, we don't. Now, you can say if you support lockdowns, or if you don't support them, that the other side is stupid. Like, you can say that, but we all know the other side is not populated with only stupid people. So lots of smart people disagree on things, even when they're happening now. I just read last night about the assassination of John Lennon, and it was tr- it's a sad story. But every single person who was involved in caring for John Lennon once he was shot, after the event happened, they all disagreed on the specific order of events, the events themselves. You've got three different doctors claiming that they were the ones to do the surgery on John. And they said that the other doctor is not remembering correctly because they weren't really the one doing the surgery. They were just an intern or vice versa. It's just got confusion concerning an event that they were all involved in experiencing together. Human beings speculating that they know what happened billions of years ago, millions. You can believe that and that's cool, man. But if you incorporate... That speculation into your biblical faith, and you expect to have a positive or meaningful effect on the world around you, you're kidding yourself. You're absolutely kidding yourself. And so I'd say in the desire to be seen as smart or wise or intelligent, you're basically neutralizing your own witness as a believer in God. So I just want to spend the last minute or two, because we have a couple minutes left. We'll try to taper things off here, bro. But just to focus on our premise that Believing that God made the world in six literal days helps us in mission, helps us in evangelism. And the reason for it is because we have a message to share. 
we have a vision, a, a picture of God to share with this world. And this picture of God is a, of a God who works mightily in our lives, in this world. And you just ch- turn to three quarters of the way through the Bible and you've got four Gospels which, which highlight this over and over again, that God stepped down into our world in the person of Jesus and literally wherever he walked, he was healing people, he was casting out demons, he was doing all of these incredible things, giving sight to the blind. This is an incredible picture of God, a God who loves us so much, who wants to spend time with us. And that is the picture of the world. And the, the challenge is this, is that the evolutionary worldview in terms of the origins of humanity and animal kingdom and the plants as well contradicts this picture of God. It contradicts the invitation, which is, as we were saying, to pick up our cross, to lay down our lives in following Jesus' example. And this is what I want to really focus on, is that in the, in the first Sabbath, what we have is here is we have no record of God ever making a command for people to worship on that day in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. And our evangelical friends will point towards that and say, it's just not there. But what we do have is something so much more powerful, which is this, is that God actually led by example. He rested on the Sabbath day because he wanted you and I to rest as, as well. And this is so much more powerful so much more powerful. You'd imagine that people, just sorry to interrupt, but you'd imagine that people made in the image of God who are perfectly in harmony with God would do what he does on the Sabbath. That's exactly right. They're together. Exactly. And for God to ask us to do something which he himself didn't do and is, is not planning to do and has never done in many ways, but particularly with regards to our origins in the first Sabbath, it is totally contradictory. We see a God deeply involved in our time, in our lives, who is willing to get his hands dirty just so that he can save us. And this is the consistent picture of the Bible. We are literally giving up our picture of what God is like from the Bible when we give up our understanding of creation and the, the six-day creation followed by the first uh, Sabbath day. This is gonna, I'm just going to c- close this up with this last thought. So by faith we believe that the things that are seen were made by things that are not seen, Hebrews 11.3. So the idea that God made the world in six literal days, to accept that requires faith. We don't deny that. We accept that fully. And I would contend that Believing in anything that happened 5,000 years ago requires a degree of faith. The difference between Bible Christians and people who accept man's theories is that Bible Christians accept that fact. We just we accept the obvious. We, we don't ignore the obvious. And the obvious is, for flawed, imperfect beings who have not the capacity to see perfectly into the past, to accept anything about the past requires faith. We accept that. But those who who accept man's theories don't accept that. They want to believe that man can tell you with certainty exactly what happened and, and in a sense, be God. And so we accept by faith the testimony of Scripture. There's lots of evidence upon which we can base our faith, but it can't be proven in the same way that we can prove the sun's in the sky. Nothing about the past can be proven on that level. Now, I go about and you go about, we preach the gospel, and we call people to faith in Christ. To, to be saved by God requires faith. 
So if we, on a personal level, as a church proper, are accepting evolutionary theory alongside of biblical faith, we're really not accepting biblical faith. And we're preaching a message, and we're saying to people, accept by faith the promise of God, that he can restore you, that he can change you. And we have to believe that ourselves. But when we don't even believe what the texts of Scripture say in regards to creation— Aren't we really kidding ourselves when we say we believe what the scriptures say in regard to redemption? 100%. And there's a lot of ways to go with that. But I just wanted to bring up that last point before we close and maybe give you one minute, bro, in case you're chomping. Or mm. maybe do we leave this as a closer? Do you got I'm, something I'm to say? Chomping you chomping? Oh, you chomp away. You got the, I always give everyone who's on the podcast the right to speak last. It ultimately comes down to where do we place our faith? Do we place it in the the message that God has revealed to us in the Bible, the words that he has revealed to us? Or do we trust our own rational powers, our own reasoning? And that is the question for us um, today. That's the question for the people that we're studying with as well. And I want to tell you, Matt, that we need to choose faith in God every single time. He will never fail us. He is the rock on which we can build our lives our churches, and our evangelism. Amen. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Thank you, Sven, for those thoughts. Let us exercise faith in the words of God. Um, bless, bless you all, and uh, we look forward to seeing you next week on All Things Evangelism. Take care.